Hi, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? I'm feeling a little bit blue. Blue? Mm. Not purple? No. Why are you feeling blue and not purple files? Purple files are purple files. Born to the purple. What's happening, Rach? What's going on? Well, this is a show, Yum Yum Five, where we are talking about... I really thought you were going to say Yum Yum Files, and I was just going to be like, oh boy, here we go again, and we just get the X-Files theme playing. But you're right, Rachel, we're not doing X-Files, we're doing Babylon 5. Yes. Episode by episode, from a rewatch perspective, that does mean spoilers, and I think in this case, majorly so. I think this is one of those ones where... You haven't seen the show, you know, good luck listening to us because uh, this one's a juicy one to talk about. Mm-hmm. So, Rachel, uh, other than feeling blue, how are you feeling? How are you doing? I'm excited to talk about Babylon 5. I'm excited too, Rachel. So let's just get in there. I mean, obviously, for those who are newcomers to our podcast, Yum Yum is from the famous line of dialogue, Yum Yum from Star Trek Discovery. And we could banter right now about how important that is or which character in this episode would say Yum Yum. We know, we both know who the character of the Yum Yum saying would be in this episode. It is quite clear that it would be Rachel. Come on, you have to say it. I feel like you're teeing me up for failure, but Nagraf? It's Nagraf, baby, every single time. Of if course he's it's in him. the episode. He's the guy. He's the he's guy. He's the guy. Many complications. Price high. I'll pay for it. What episode are we tackling for this one, Rachel? The Third episode of the first season of Babylon 5, entitled Born to the Purple. Mm. The DVD brochure gives us this description. When it comes to political manipulation, Londo Malari knows where the skeletons are buried. His purple files hold scandalous secrets about Centauri's royal families. But when it comes to love... Even Wiley Londo. Wiley Wiley Londo. Excuse you. I sorry. wasn't done yet. Sorry, sorry. Is that a Looney Tunes reference? I don't know. <laughs> may fall victim to a plan to seduce those hush hush tales from him. Born to the purple. Rachel. We have watched this, of course, many a times. Many a time. But what was your experience watching it that first time? You've discussed here on the pod that you watched the first handful of episodes on your own. And in the previous discussions, Londo was definitely a character for you, but you seem to be drawn in by some of the more human characters than him. So <laughs> this is an episode that you watched on your own that first time. That's Londo all day. Londo all day, all episode. All day, all night. Full days of Londo Malari. I remember thinking, why the fuck is she bald but with a ponytail? Because she's Centauri. Because that's just the look of Centauri women. Yeah. But I remember being like, I don't like this. (laughs) I find this weird. (laughs) 
<laughs> and no one are like, oh yeah, they're aliens kind of way, just to, oh, why? Why did they do this kind of way? Yeah. Um, and now I, I love it, and it makes sense for what the centauri are like, that their women are like. Uh, uh, and it's memorable. Groomed like that, yes. It's a memorable look for the show. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I remember thinking that her dancing wasn't that impressive. Yeah, but she's hot, so it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. She's not really a dancer. She's really a slave, so it doesn't matter how good or bad her dancing is. But what did you actually think of the episode itself that first time? It was a weird mix because it is so character heavy, but it doesn't forget about all of the plot that they were set up. Mm. Like the non-Centauri issues are still continuing. Thus, Sinclair is trying to organize those negotiations about a different sector of disputed space. Which was, you know, the main part of the last episode. Of the first episode of season one. Yeah, yeah. And so I have always enjoyed this one. I've grown to like it in different ways over the years. When I first watched it, it was just a funny episode. I'm like, oh, that wacky old Londo getting into hijinks. And and all the gags was something that I really enjoyed as, as a child watching it. But now, growing up and being older and having seen the show so many times... It's a it's a it's a very melancholic experience. It's very sad. It's very sweet. That's the word I would use to describe it. It's, yeah. it's sweet. And I feel like it hits different the older that you get. Yes. As as I become Londo himself, an old washed up Republican. I will say right here, I loved this episode, revisiting it for, for this. I really loved it. I think this is my favorite episode. We've watched thus far in our rewatch of the show. It really leapt out at me. It was a very fun experience. It was funny. It was sad. It was it was romant- genuinely sweet in its romance. Yeah. Which I don't say often for TV shows. I've already made the reservation at Fresh Air. That's the finest restaurant on Babylon 5. What if we're seen together? What will people say? They'll say, they'll say Ambassador Molare is a most fortunate man. This is a monumental experience for us on the podcast because we have been very critical on this podcast because we had to cover Star Trek Discovery and we've had to cover some weirdly odd episodes of Babylon 5. And why this is a monumental episode to discuss for us is... This this is the type of episode we love when we watch TV shows, in which you wouldn't say it is a five-star episode. It's perfect. This is an Ozymandias-level episode TV writing of, say, Breaking, uh, Ozymandias and Breaking Bad. But this is a goofy episode. It's very silly. It's structurally all over the place. It's very messy. It it's, bounces. It's tonally wild, yet we unabashedly love it. It works for us. And, and 
people may not recognize that quality within us because of our previous episodes, but we love episodes like this. Being big fans of Star Trek and big fans of Babylon 5, some of the best episodes to us are those goofy ones, or are those tonally wild ones, or are the ones that aren't measure of a man. Like, one of my favorite Star Trek episodes is the is the Sherlock Holmes episodes in, in, in with Data, and you have Moriarty. Those episodes are silly as hell, but they're some of my absolute favorite episodes of Star sci-fi television and here we have born to the purple which we could sit down here and brutalize and criticize and do the usual shtick that we always do but what we what 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 pushes it beyond those those harsh critiques and yes we will critique it of course but is there's a level of fun here to be had that we particularly enjoy and it's because this chooses character over dumb plot. If this was more about the dumb plot and we had less character focus, then we would be bitching about this more. But since this has a very strong character focus, the plot is there to serve that character rather than the characters serving the plot, which has always been one of our main critiques when viewing episodes of television for this podcast. We would rather have an episode give us more information and more experience of our characters than pushing along a substandard plot and our characters just being machine parts for those plots. And this is one of the first real episodes of Babylon 5 that is a character episode. We've had character moments in previous ones, and we've had characterful scenes, but this is a dedicated episode to a character. So when you read the synopsis... Londo falls in love with an exotic dancer and she's trying to steal some files. You read it and you roll your eyes because it sounds, oh, that sounds silly. And it is. It's very, very silly. There's so many 90s sci-fi stupid shit in here. But at the center of What are you talking about? (laughs) Which random piece of technology? The mind probe? She's very good at using it. The electric (laughs) gloves? It was the mind probe. You know how. When you have an episode like this in which you're honing in on a character, it can be a double-edged sword in a lot of ways because you have episodes, especially of TNG, in which you have an episode dedicated to a character you don't like and it's just a boring episode because you already don't like the character. Yeah. You were so-so on Londo to begin with. Did this episode win you over to him on that initial watching of it? It endeared me to Londo in a very specific way because he is so aware of how he appears and how he has constructed that, but also how that mask that he wears is necessary for his position and damaging to his life. Yes, yes, to his personhood. But it is something he must do. It is a part of the Centauri culture. And he is, of course, an ambassador. He has to abide by these things. he is a staunch Republican. An old, washed-up Republican dreaming of better days. Ryan, you're being oddly reserved. No, 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 in terms of attacking me. Because 
some of my favorite shows and the shows that I rewatch, as well as more broadly stupid content that I watch, mm. are based around these good goofy episodes. Like I enjoy them because they're goofy. Mm. Like, because I don't have to take them seriously, but there's a good amount of character. The plot makes sense. So, Mm. I've been waiting for you to point that out. Well, yes. But would you say, although the plot of this is a goofy episode, would you say that this is actually a goofy episode? Like, remove all the silly little jokes and all of that. Would you say that this is a purely goofy episode? I cannot find it goofy because I know where it goes. Yes. I found it very hard to think of this as a pure goofball episode because I felt an overwhelming sadness while watching it. Not just because it was When Adira is waiting for that transport. Yeah. Oh, and she gets her papers and they're both so happy, but they're like... Not now, like the wounds are too fresh. I can't stay. Mm. Well, we we will come back together. And knowing that she doesn't come back, knowing that she doesn't get to come back. In well, the she does, way, but not in the way we want. The way that the shadows manipulate her love for Londo and his attachment and adoration and mm. level of that to which he adores her. She becomes exactly what Londo and the Centauri culture is all about. Pieces on a board, a part of a bigger game at stake. I found it very hard to say that this is a goofy episode because I did feel an overwhelming sadness, not just because of how we know the bigger series-long plot to go, but just in this individual episode, learning more about Londo himself and how absolutely happy he is to be spending time with this young woman who seems to be enjoying his company too, and the overwhelming sadness he feels when she's not around and that he has to play diplomat and he's not really interested in doing the game. He's not interested in playing it, but he has to because that's his obligations. So hard, so fast. Because we get the idea that this has been like maybe a week Mm. Because at least a few days, at least a few days, because um, Sinclair says that Londo's been ducking him for a week. Mm. So we know that this is such a new level infatuation, mm. not something that's been going on for a really long time, and we just didn't hear about it until now. But this is something that's fresh. Yeah. I would say that this is one of the most important and vital episodes in Londo's Essential story. viewing. It's essential Absolutely viewing. Absolutely essential viewing. It does not appear it on the outset. But if you get a couple of seasons down the road and you don't remember who Adira is or you skipped this episode, you miss out on so fucking much that you, you've done yourself a massive disservice, in my opinion. And it's essential, more importantly, because it gives us a very big window into the inner workings of Londo Malari and the Centauri culture. It gives us a massive insight into his perspective on things. And it is not essential. just that, 
but it is so important to me in terms of it makes it even more clear how Londo and Jakar are foils for each other and how intertwined their story is mm. because we know that Londo and Jakar are going to die together according to Londo's dream. Yeah, yeah. We know that their paths are going in the same direction and they're going to end up in the same place. So it's very interesting to see how their hatred for each other blinds them to their similarities. Gentlemen, of all things in life, are females not the finest? That of all, Larry, we can at least agree. It is an essential episode, too, upon a first viewing, because this is the first episode that is a deeply character-driven episode, but also the first episode in which we see a Babylon 5 story from the perspective of a non-human character. Yes. This isn't a Sinclair episode. This isn't an Ivanover episode. This isn't a Franklin or Garibaldi episode. This is one of the Aliens episodes. So it gives us this little window at the very beginning of what their kind of story are going to look like. And because in compar- Delenn in Soul Hunter is very different. And it's not really... And again, we complain, whose story was that yeah. episode? And so here we are shown, and we will be shown again and again and again, a lot of the alien stories are going to be deeply, deeply focused mm-hmm. on the actual character themselves rather than necessarily the plot of any given episode. While the human stories seem to be, at this moment in time in the show, very much focused on plot stuff, very much focused on the bigger game being played here, and you get Pieces character moments. Placed. Yes, and you get lots of character moments. But mm-hmm. here, Born to the Purple is a first alien episode, mm-hmm. and it is a fun time. And again, we need to stress this. It's fun. But it doesn't mean that the fun is the only tone being set here. There's lots of things going on. And Babylon 5, at this moment in time, is still trying to figure out how to balance tone. Yes. And I think this episode, out of the ones we've done, perfectly manages its tone from going from extremely silly to extremely serious. And not serious in the sense of, oh no, somebody's going to die, but serious in the sense of... Londo's very sad, and I feel sad for him, and I don't want him to be sad. I want him to be happy. Every time Londo was happy in this episode, I was happy, because I know this isn't going to last for him for very long. Oh, yeah. But it's an episode that, on the rewatch, is so impacted by what comes after. A part of my major enjoyment of this episode was all of these little details that don't necessarily need to be here, but they add to the sense of uh, the fullness of the episode. As somebody who's worked in you know the creative field, having you know made plays and directed and written stuff, the most fun experience I have with that is adding these little flourishes that will help bolster up the experience. And there's so many here in this episode. There's so many little touches that 
they don't add to they don't add to the major plot or characters, but they add to the viewer's enjoyment. Like for instance, at the very very beginning of the episode, we have Jakar and Sinclair rocking up to the strip club, and they're talking. And while they're all talking, you see Jakar every now and then looking over his shoulder at the dancers, and oh, it's just a yeah. nice little touch to show us and remind us that Jakar is a very horny horny boy. As soon as he's not talking to Londo, his <laughs> head is turning. Like, it's pretty much every single time Sinclair is speaking. But it's not it's too... Over- always turned. But it's, yeah, but it's, 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 it's overt enough without mm. being super distracting. But it, it is a nice piece of character work. And again, visual there. Visual yes. stuff happening. It wasn't like Sinclair looked over and said, Jakar, you're looking at the ladies. You and Londo are just so alike, like Discovery would do. Mm. It was a nice little visual touch, and it brought a big smile to my they face. They let and it, it breathe. And it ties into the fact that Londo and Jakar, as much as they hate each other, as much as there's bad blood between the two of them and their races, they're very much the same person in a lot of regards. They're both people who like, well, they even toast to it. They even get uh, all friendly about it, which are, you know, females. Are they not the finest thing? And, And they agree upon that. Yeah, and they both want glory for their people. Yeah. Uh, one of the other touches I loved, little touch, is uh, a little world thing, which is uh, somebody, I think Londo or Jakar, one of the two mentions a Jovian tree worm, which is fun because later in the season, in Death Walk, I do believe, we hear about Jovian sunspots as mm-hmm. drinks. So yeah. a nice little touch. See, little details like that bolster up the enjoyment. It's not just the big speeches that Londo gives or the moments of uh, comedy with Via. It's these little things here and here and there, like uh, the guy, the pilot guy that walks up <laughs> yeah. to Kodoth and hits on her. And I like that he called her. Uh, I like that he called her something like "Hey, spots." I like that touch of him calling uh, her out via her spots, like "Hey, hot yeah. spots." And I can imagine a guy doing that with an alien like that. Oh, yeah. But I like the little, I like the touch there of she like throws him and he makes a squealing little noise. It made me laugh hysterically. Just the noise of him. He he made this real, and it was very funny. Mm -hmm. Hey, hot spots. How about you and me blow this giant and go play a little scan the sector? You know, rewatching this, you notice things that you never noticed before. Later in the episode, same guy. The same guy is on the at the Zocalo, and uh, Trachus, the bad guy, is He's running through the crowd of people. Flowers, assumably trying to pick up a different woman. And yeah, Trachus is running through trying to get Adira, and this guy gets in his way. And Trachis just zaps him and he gets thrown again. I don't think I've ever fully recognized that that was the same guy because he's shot from behind in that yeah. second scene. So, and, you know, he was a very nondescript looking guy, just like a blonde haired yeah. guy. But and it very easily could have been anyone. Like, it's, just, it's just like, oh, they just used the same stuntman. But they didn't need to add that there. No. That was just a little joke. If you really want to pay attention to it, you can just go, this guy's had a rough 48 hours, yeah. huh? He's been thrown twice in He's the last two days. He's not having a good time. He's not having a great time. This guy's just looking for love like Londo. Yeah, sure, he's being a pig about it, but hey, come on. Pretty bold to hit on a nun. Mm-hmm. Got to give him some brownie points. Yeah. I don't know if I could do that. 
I don't know if I could walk up to a non woman and just go, hey, hot spots. I-, I don't think I'm brave enough to, but that's why he's a pilot. There's another thing that I want to acknowledge, which is the sets. <laughs> I love the sets in Babylon 5 because in, in their sets, that you know it's futuristic because in their quarters, they just have like neon rods. Yeah, just in the like background. it's just. <laughs> sometimes there's just random shit thrown in, and it's just like, like, yeah, it adds to something. But like the decadence of Londo's quarters. With all the statues. I'm getting to see his bed and how much of. His living quarters is a testament to the old republic and the wealth that he used to have. Because nothing in there is new. No. It's all very old. Everything is worn and old. And he gives Adira even an old brooch that has been there since the days of the republic starting. Again, it's showing us so much how how he is tied to the past. He cannot yeah. let go of the past. He, he cannot be a man of the present or the future. And he doesn't have anything to live for in the moment other than Adira. Yeah, which is still a very hard thing to do. You can't just, do, just solely live off one person no. like that. He has to find more meaning in his life. Like, another little detail I love is... <laughs> uh, Veer and his little Game Boy. Yeah. Whenever I think of Veer, one of the five things I think of is him at the very beginning being a character at a diplomatic meeting playing his little Sega Genesis Boy or whatever, his little Game Boy console thing. And this is the same character who, a season from now, will be pleading with Londo to not commit genocide. Mm Mm-hmm. Same it guy. turns around fast. Same guy. <laughs> and the way that, like, that that prop was clearly, like, made and adapted for that scene and that purpose. And it's just, it's purely visual. There's no dialogue reference to it. And then when Jakar's playing with it and hitting it, and oh, he's and just like, oh, he's looking thing. at it like, don't break my thing. I love the fact that in between the scenes, Jakar and Kodath picked up this little Game Boy and decided that they were bored enough that they wanted to play with it. I, I... I love it so much. This episode is so much fucking fun. Like, a lot of recurring gags throughout it as well, like the don't give away the homeworld gag is, it's not the greatest gag, but the fact that it keeps happening, and both Kodath and Via, I would have loved to have sat down and watched their negotiations because they are presented to be so dumb, yet so energetic that I would have loved to have seen it. They were both given full ambassadorial powers. Sinclair, if he wanted to, I think, could have just gone to them. You say yes, yes, you say yes, yes. Okay, we're done here. Yeah, but but he left and he was like, Talia, you do, you do, you deal with it, Talia. I don't I don't, I don't want to give a fuck about this. I'm going to beat up Londo if I must. I also like uh, when they go to the strip club later, um, Sinclair and Londo, uh, the rhinoceros bodyguard guy. That I don't know if it's the exact same character, but that alien race will turn up two episodes from now, being hired by Jakar to be his bodyguard, and that's a fun detail. It doesn't really add to anything, but it adds to the fact that there's a real lived-in world. Something I really took down, and I thought, if I was a creator of a show, 
I don't know if I would have had the forethought to think of this, which is when they're on their television screens talking to one another and it shuts off, it just says Babcom. That's a detail I don't think I would have thought of necessarily, but it adds to the fact that this feels like it's a real place, like this is a real space station, and it has like its own little logo, Babcom, and it feels like very like uh, official and very very militaristic as well, and just, here it is, Babcom. That's a nice little detail that I liked, and also uh, that Via is a treasure. That was a scene that made me smile very much, which is... The comedy double act of Vera and Londo, because they're supposed oh, to be like... moon-faced assassin of joy. Because they're supposed to be like, uh, they're clowns. But the mm. more we learn about the Centauri, the more unpleasant they are. But when we are representative of the Centauri through Veer and Londo, it's hard to take it seriously that these are colonizing bastards. Because Veer is like this They have goofy no guy. power in that moment. No, but their history is still there, and we find out in this episode that they still have these horrible things like slavery. That's a law. They have legalized slavery. Yet we are shown the Centauri at this stage through characters like Veer and Londo. And Londo is a goofy guy, but he has more layers to him, while Veer, he's nothing but a goofball. So it's kind of hard to think that these guys are actual intimidating threats in the galaxy, but we will learn, oh no, the Centauri really can be when given the opportunity to, and that's actually not great. Yeah. These talks are very important to you, aren't they? Earth Central wants a peaceful settlement, and so do I. It'll show them Babylon 5 is doing the job it was meant to do. If you can get the non and the Centauri to cooperate. Londo and Jakar know a peaceful solution in the Euphrates sector would benefit them more than a conflict. I want to really highlight that on a rewatch stuff, there's things that give me both a massive smile on my face, but also puts like a massive pit in my stomach because oh, like you know, smile, smile on your face and an ache in your stomach through a lot of these scenes. Because, like for instance, we're talking about Veer and Londo. It makes me smile and laugh every time that they rock up to this meeting and Londo's like, hey, Via, you're great. Do you have my drink? And he hands him the big drink and he and he's like, you're a treasure, Via, and like gives him a little pinch on the neck and Via's smiling and having a goofball around. And then there's a pin in my stomach because I know, oh, these fun times aren't going to last. There's soon going to be no more of these fun little exchanges between these characters. It's going to be a lot of misery and a lot of... Oh no, we've committed war crimes. And so I take these moments as they come and I accept them much more strongly than I did on my initial watch. When I see Veer and Londo being the Abbott and Costello double act that they are, I am super happy to see it because it will not be around for much longer. And many people say season one is bad. Season 1 isn't isn't worth watching. I completely disagree. I think you need to see season 1 and you need to watch season 1 because season 1 was it's the happy key times. It's to give you the perspective. Yeah, and season 1 was the innocent era. It was the times before everything went to shit. It's always fun to see when everything goes to shit, but you need that juxtaposition there. You need plots where the simple issue was Londo fell in love with a dancer who stole his files. You need that so that then a season later, you are wowed by the fact that now he's embroiled in some galactic war crimes. 
and you remember, oh, remember the simple days in which he was just wanting to be in love? Oh, one detail I would be remiss if we did not bring up that does drive me up the wall because I think this is the only episode to ever do it is Londo wears a uh, a a shawl, a a cape with a hood on it, yeah. and his hair is gone. Where did his hair go? <laughs> do you ever think about that? I think about that every single time I watch this episode. Is where's his hair gone? Because we see Sinclair his- looks better in the cape. Sinclair looks great in the cape, but Londo's wearing this cape with a hood on it, and his hair is nowhere to be seen. It is just Peter Jurisic is not wearing the wig that day, and they went, ah, just chuck a cape over it. I think about that all the time, because we are never presented with the Centauri hair ever being capable of being flattened and going down. Even in this episode, where he's laying in bed, his hair is still up and proudly strong. I... Love that detail, but it drives me up the wall. I think about it all the time. I'm like, where did his hair go? Where did his hair go? Because his hair is so big. I don't know. We mm-hmm. never see their hair wet or slicked back nah. ever. We, the most we, we get, get is when they're very, very short, but yes. they still have the crest they on it. Do. That, yeah. We even see Centauri helmets, so they have a slight little ridge up in them for uh, the. Yeah. And it accommodates the hair. Where's his hair? Where's the hair, JMS? Where did it go? Hmm? Answer me now. Where's Londo's hair? Hashtag free Londo's hair. <laughs> but they they only make the mistake once that we can recollect. I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's a joy. You are a treasure, Veer. <laughs> well, shall we begin? One other detail so a lot of this episode is centered around londo we have the story with the purple files and the negotiation with the nuns but that's basically both of those are the a plot and the b plot is the devastating story of volophon Okay, can we talk about this? This is my least favorite aspect of the episode. I liked it. I have issues with this. So the plot being, of course, Garibaldi is seeing that somebody is hijacking and using the classified channel, the gold channel, to phone home or phone somewhere, Mm -hmm. and he's doing his security thing and looking into it. I have a lot of issues with this. And... My main issue is this is a very reverse-engineered story. JMS had an end in mind, and we had to get there. I like the ending. I love what we get from it. I do. But it's not the most enjoyable story to watch because all of the scenes are the exact same scene again and again and again until we get the reveal. Mm-hmm. It is Garibaldi going, hey, Ivanova, this is crazy. And Ivanova going, yeah, fuck off, Garibaldi. And that's it. Again and again and yeah. again. It doesn't tie into the A plot in any way, except for you have a minor moment where they say, hey, go to Brown Sector. That's it. Uh, I have many issues with it. That being the biggest one, when you actually watch it, it's a, it's a lot of the same scene repeated mm-hmm. because we need to keep hammering that this is a B-plot. The ending is brilliantly sad, but I also have issues with it, which is, of course, the ending being it's all revealed that Ivanova is phoning her f- dying father and we get a lot of exposition about their relationship and what it was like for Ivanova and 
how the choices that she has made were choices that were ones that brought a lot of conflict between her and her father. It's wonderfully played. The music is great. It's very sad. Third episode, though. It's a very heavy thing to throw in when we've known Ivana for, for like, really one episode. Because she wasn't really in Soul Hunter that much. We've known her for one or two episodes. And it's like, here you go. I feel like this is something you should hold on to until a bit later into the season to play around with. I disagree. Because I do not feel like it's as brushed. I do agree that it would be nice for this to be a bit later Mm. in. But what happened in the first episode? With a fun of him? Yeah. She was doing her job, and then she told us about her mother. Mm-hmm. But the, see, I think the thing is... And in this episode, but the diff- she is doing her job, and no. then she, she but, then we see what's happening with her father. But the difference between this and Midnight and the Firing Line is we got really no good character-filled moments with Ivanova. It was just her being a bitch, and you obviously know, well, she's not really a bitch, so what's going on? And then you get the reveal at the at the end. I do feel like this suffers from the issue that we've talked about many a times over the episodes, which is it's it's emotional manipulation. You're going to feel sad watching it, and you are going to be endeared to Ivanova. Mm-hmm. I'm already endeared to Ivanova at this point. I'm not saying that this shouldn't be in the show. I think they just needed to construct a story a better around it, because again... The lead up to it is just the same scene over and over and over again. And then this big drop of emotional stuff and exposition and lore and all this stuff. And it's very impactful. It makes me teary-eyed, I will admit. But it is emotional manipulation. It does feel like from a script writing perspective, we're three episodes in. We've really got to establish that Ivanova is a character that people should really care about. Let's kill her father. It feels a little I, bit too mechanical in its implementation for me. Oh, it feels m- more like um, okay, we've got we've got this Londo stuff, we've got this Nun stuff, and we've got a few extra minutes. Yeah, it feels. We'll, tacked on. we'll put this this fits in here. Like we need this part because we want to do this episode later on. Yeah, which so and the episode it, it leads to is one of the worst in the Hauntai show. Yeah. yeah, so it also has that staple of I still, annoyance too. I, I, I enjoy I that like B plot, the story. Yeah, but, but it's a terrible that episode, episode as a whole. Ugh. But again, it does feel a bit tacked on. It's a little too early for me. I think six episodes in would have been better I, I, because I'm already endeared to her. But it feels like this is hammering the nail in too heavily, too strongly, too early. I think it feels too much like a writer's manipulation rather than a genuine moment. The actual moment itself, like the acting on the screen and, and the and the dialogue and the music, all very good, but it is about the lead-up and when and why it's implemented is but my issue. I think I like fully admit that this is probably me just trying to find justifications and band-aiding this situation. Because this could have been played much better. Fully agree with that. But for me, with what I bring to this plot, is that kind of sense of the world continues when you are dealing with this kind of shit. It It doesn't matter that she's going through this awful experience and she approaches it in that way where she's just like, no, 
I'm not dealing with that. I'm not. I'm not ready for that. I'm not going to face that. Oh, you mean Ivanova's classic repress it until it overwhelms me yes. attitude? Well, in her defense, I really like the ending in which uh, uh, Garibaldi asks, you know, says, hey, you want to get a drink? And she does the Ivanova thing where she shuts it down. Militaristic woman. She's like, I'm on duty. You know, she's choking back tears. But she does what we have been presented with her character, which is she knows to pull back that mm-hmm. facade and say, hey, you know what, Garibaldi? Some other s- time. Some other time. Like, I-, I recognize that you're being an empathetic person right now. And I, I could have just lost my job for this. Some other time, and that does pay off. We do, we do get a payoff to that drink other time, which is an again a nice detail uh, that makes the world feel lived in. But yeah, I have issues with this. I think its execution is lacking in a lot of ways, but it's also yeah. extremely effective. And I can get why you want to defend it because here's the be all and end all of it: it makes you sad. Yeah, and that's what it's there to do. It is there to affect you emotionally, and if it has done that, that means it has been successful in some way but i i have always felt that this was a bit clunky for me it's a a little bit of a bland story but with a very devastating payoff and also this episode as a whole i don't know if this one belongs in this episode in which the the tone has been funny and melancholic while this is just fucking depressing (laughs) like it's just flat out depressing uh, and that's what it's there to be. It makes me sad, but the episode has made me sad in a different way up until that point. And then that point comes along and I'm just like, but oh, But then you fuck. also face that thing of like, well, where else would you fit it in? Because if you try and fit it in anywhere else, it really has the same sort of And that's problem. the thing. You need a different episode for it to be in and not one that's necessarily in the run-up of episodes we'll be coming across. It's a great thing, but it feels like a thing to me a little bit too much. It feels like JMS had Avonova's character written down and he had this as a part of it and we had to put it in here. It feels a little bit too, again, forced and mechanical rather than natural and emotional for me. For me, I, like I said, like the acting's great and it, I, I love the dialogue, but it is... Uh, you're watching an episode about Londo trying to get some purple files back from uh, a lot of vagina, and then you get this scene where it's just like, I'm dying, and you're like, oh, yeah. okay. What a wild De- moment. Deathbed monologue. Thank you, Dushenka Maya. <sighs> Little soul. You haven't called me that since I was... Papa? This is the Londo episode, though. Yes. This is the Londo plot. And we've been talking a lot about him, but not actually delving too heavily into the minutia of the story, because, again, the story is very, uh, very light. Londo is in love with this dancer, Adira. Adira is in love with Londo, clearly, but she's being forced to do something against her will because she is a slave. We have an evil alien guy who wants these precious information from Londo so that he could blackmail the Centauri into things that he wants. And that's the plot. 
you know, she gets the files, screws over Londo, but she didn't mean to do it, but he forgives her anyway, and they have to get her back and get the files back, and Sinclair gets involved, and you have these negotiations in the background, but it's very light on plot, but what we do learn about Londo is 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 very deep and meaningful. But I want to talk about Adira. You know, Adira is a example of something that I think is a missing art form in modern television, which is the importance of a one-off character. Not all the time do we need 15 episodes to develop a character to be effective. That's a great lie that many people use to defend poor characterization in television shows of the modern age. They use that excuse a lot of, well, it's not 22 episodes a season, it's only 15, so we don't have time to develop characters. It's bullshit. Because you have episodes like this and many TNG episodes in which a character will purely exist for one episode, maybe two. And I decades later after that episode, remember that character very fondly and felt like I got to know them. And Adira is in two episodes of this show. One in season one, one in season five. And that's a great gap between. Yet throughout the whole entire show, I remembered her very fondly. And I was very keen on re-watching it to see what it is that I like about this character and what I remember about this character. And it's the performance. The actress who plays Adira delivers such a such a sweetness and energy to this character that could have just been absolutely a train wreck of a character. I think she is very good. She delivers the right amount of kind of soap opery acting to the role and a right amount of Shakespearean quality to it as well. She has to deliver some lines that are p- very corny. The, these are my better days, Londo, that kind of line. But uh, this actress, who is, yes, well known for playing a lot of vagina in Austin Powers, she is fan fantastic here. She has just a very very light feminine charm to this character that makes it feel real. She feels as if she's genuinely in love with Londo, but also she has to do things that she doesn't want to do. Uh, what do you think about uh, Adira and the art form that is the one-off character? agree with you it is something that it feels neglected because it's just like it's a step in between like those character actors that just have like one scene Mm. or something like that and people who come in to do more guest spots where they're in a a full arc it's just like they're missing that mid-range of character development and I agree it's a bullshit excuse because you can develop a character quickly and well yeah otherwise like and you can see those skills in other formats you see one scene characters in films that have immediate characterization and stick around in your head. The entire form of a short story would not exist if you couldn't do that. Exactly right. And 
What do you think about Adira? Because also, you know her more for a more recent role in uh, Jane the Virgin. She was a recurring role on that as well, that actress. Yeah, she's fun in that. Well, Jane the Virgin is just fun. <laughs> that's trash. Yeah, that's that's trash. But what do you think about... <laughs> that's all goofballs. Um, I am really endeared to Adira and she, she really does a good job um, the actress does a really good job at conveying that conflict and the way that this character has hope in a hopeless situation because it is that dangle of emancipation papers Mm. that really gets her to do it that's what Dracus has to remind her of because she's clearly been dragging this out because she likes Londo she likes Londo and to an extent she has fallen in love with him and she does the right thing as the story goes along. She's given the opportunity to get her freedom and go, but she doesn't want to because she knows in her heart and in what we've seen in the episode that Londo is a good man. He is someone that is genuinely empathetic and caring. Yes, he's loud and brash and he has these horrible tendencies to romanticize genocides of the past, but he is someone who's self aware and reflective as well and she finds an attachment to to that and he sees her as this better version of herself than what she actually Mm -hmm. is and he doesn't care about her being a dancer or a commoner or a lower person than him which is the tradition of centauri is all about appearances and power and status Londo doesn't give a shit about that when it comes to her, so that also draws her into his world, into his charm. And it's so important for where it goes, because if the shadows had stayed out of it and let Londo be happy... He probably wouldn't commit war crimes? No, because he would he would have been satisfied enough to step out of the limelight if he had happiness. Mm. Instead, he... Chose power. He chose power because that's what he thought had made him happy in the past. Yeah. I think one of the most important things about the uh, Adira-Londo dynamic and what makes her an important one-off character, because really, her character is there to serve our understanding of Londo. We Mm. get interiority of her character, we get to know her backstory in some way, we get to know that she's unhappy with her situation in life and wants to be better. Well, Well, yeah, we would assume that of a slave. But what she's there for is to... Uh, give Londo something to feed off of to help us better understand his character. And she does that very well, but the important dynamic here between the two of them is, to me, the the roles in Centauri culture of the disadvantaged 
and the advantage, the privileged and the poor. And, and a massive gap between those two. But it's not as massive between Londo and Adira. And that's what makes this the relationship. Beauty of Babylon 5. And that's as what well. makes this relationship uh, a very interesting and strong one and a, and a memorable one because Londo is completely unaware for most of this story that Adira has no choices available to her. She is a slave, yet he is talking about how he feels he is trapped in life and that he is unaware of... He is trapped in servitude. While she is actually trapped in servitude. And it's a dramatic irony there, but she doesn't hate him for that. She genuinely has... uh, empathy for him because she actually knows what it's like but she's not looking at him like this oblivious rich guy which he clearly is but she has a human connection with him because she knows what it's like to be a part of the centauri culture and how it can chew you up and spit you out i think trachis even mentions this at some point which is that uh, you know, for some Centauri, it's all about the image and power and all of that. And if you don't have that, you're like Adira. You're 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 this uh, rejected individual who's sold into slavery, and the that is such an interesting thing. Like for instance, I really never thought about this or noticed this. Londo has that m- iconic speech in a lot of ways about the Centauri and how they work. It's about image and power. And when he looks beneath the mask that he is forced to wear because of their societal standards, that whole entire speech is memorable. But what I forgot is 90% of it is shot looking at Adira and her reaction to that speech, showing in the visuals her reacting is telling us a lot about mm-hmm. her as well. Yes, we're learning about Londo, but it's showing us what Adira feels about this. And she's reacting to this like she's aware of this as well. But hers is a very different knowledge of this experience of the Centauri imagery that we have to abide by. And you get that wonderful exchange in which he wants to take her out to the fanciest restaurant on Babylon 5, Fresh Air, and she's worried about it. She's like, well... What will people say? What will people say? You're going to be if they seen see with me. me. With you. How, how can you spin that? And Londa is just... I don't get. I don't care. No, they can talk all matter. they like. To hell with appearances. Oh, and also just like... He's just like, no, I, I, don't, I don't care. They'll say that I look happy. Whatever. And... The fact that we know Londo to be all of these negative traits of the Centauri culture, you know, we saw in previous episodes, he's pining for power, he's trying to wheel and deal. When presented with a genuine you know, human, well, you know, Centauri, a genuine connection with another being, he's actually capable of letting those things go. Yeah. And that's what makes it all the sadder that he will not, for the rest of the series, be able to actually have a genuine connection like that again. No. no. So what does he do? He reverts to the thing that he thinks fills that void underneath the mask, mm-hmm. which is power yeah. and and ownership and, and greed and just all of that stuff. And it's it's absolutely tragic. But when you watch this episode, it's nice to see that he has this moment because... It also, as we keep saying, 
it endears us to Londo because up until now he's been this sad, drunk, angry clown. But here we see that this guy is actually capable of a genuine Warmth. connection. Warmth, romance, love, happiness. Seeing Londo happy throughout this episode, smiling and laughing. Peter Jurisic's so great as an actor here. He's really honing in on how to do Londo, where the final shot of the episode is Londo waving goodbye, and he's got this goofy grin on his face, but then the grin drops and he's alone again. And he kind of just walks off, and it's really sad. It's like, oh, Londo's alone again. And that will be a recurring thing of Londo is being alone. <laughs> then take this and wear it proudly as a free woman. And someday, come back to me. Are we ready for the actor's spotlights? The part of the show in which we have a look at an actor or actress that appeared in an episode in a a more supporting role, minor role, maybe even a one-off role here, and highlight if we've met them before in any other pieces of media, what we thought about them here, and just give some interesting little tidbits of information. Because again, one of the things we really want to highlight is... What makes Babylon 5 a very enjoyable experience when revisiting the show is all these little things that help bolster up the experience, and that includes these actors. So which one are we looking at, Rachel? Who are we delving into? Are we delving into the actress of uh, Adira? Because we've already kind of mentioned uh, what we think about her and that she was a lotter for China in Austin Powers. Uh, So we're not doing Adira. No. We are doing Clive Ravillo. Who was Trachus, the slave master of this episode. Who um, I think you called Dracus a few times, because let's be honest, uh, he yeah. looks like Dracula. Yeah. Doesn't he look like Dracula? Yeah. What a- They should have given him the Dracula teeth. <laughs> they should have given him the Dracula teeth. I want to say, before you dive in, into telling us about this actor, what did you think of him in the episode? Sleazeball. Right. I didn't like him. I didn't like him all that much. I thought Trachis and the performance was very boring. He was very apathetic. Cookie cutter. Very dull. But I was just like, he's serving a purpose. That's what it feels like. He served a purpose. He's being very... Kind of methodical in his approach. He's a like, very... And now the character does this, and now the character does that. He's a very low-energy performance in a very high-energy episode, and mm. he sticks out like a sore thumb to me. I think a part of it, too, that frustrates me is I know who the actor is after looking him up. I'm like, oh, and I know what he's capable of, and seeing it not be fulfilled here... I wonder if it's just the script, the direction, the makeup, or just... I'm doing a sci-fi show. I don't really have to try. I don't know. Or he's just older in his career than what I've seen him before. And maybe Hmm. he's just kind of in that phoning in phase. I don't know. But I found Trachis to be the first guest star character that I was very disappointed by. This guy's a great actor and we'll talk about his roles. But Trachis was a very annoying character to me in the episode because he felt like the one actor here who wasn't really giving it their all in comparison to everyone else, especially Adira, who I felt was giving it her all. 
And I think it's the makeup too. The makeup he has is very like gray, pale skin. Mm -hmm. And it looks like the type of makeup that we've talked about in Discovery where it locks your facial expression in. And the facial expression he has is bemused. Yeah, I don't think the actor is experienced enough to work around that and work with it because as we've noted particularly with Doug Jones mm. it's a very specific skill set and it is extremely hard to do well and his character in the episode is just a stock standard i want the thing get me the thing yeah it's a bit defunct he doesn't have any flourishments like soul hunter in the previous episode who had like he's mad and he's a creature drawn to death like that's something an actor can really sink their teeth into here you just have a guy i want purple files give me purple files she lied to me too but I have the, I want purple files. That's yeah. You got to do the thing. But purple act- files, do but the thing. The actor Clive Reville is a very well known actor to people. Uh, he's been in a ton of no. stuff or been removed from an important role. Uh, oh yes, that's um. But to first acknowledge, we'll start at the beginning. He was born in 1930. Do you remember? What nationality? He He's was New po- Zealand. Yes, he was born in Wellington. So that's something I want to talk about. This actor is one of those guys who is a... Uh, and Babylon 5 actually have a few actors like this who is a master of different accents and dialects. I think of him as an Irishman, but he's a New Zealand guy. Not Irishman in this role, but a specific role that I know him for. And I and, and when you see what he physically looks like, I'm like, oh, this guy looks Irish to me. But no, he's a New Zealand actor who's who's a master of several different accents from my understanding, and uh, he uses them very well. Uh, he, uh, he, what, he's just British, you would say? Yeah. Just and British? he's... He appears in a lot of British things as well, because that's what I thought of him as. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, what's he done that is of note for people? Uh, I did note down it was weird that he he's in a couple of Mel Brooks movies, which I didn't realize. But after looking at them, I'm like, oh yeah, he's in Robin Hood Men in Tights. He's uh, for, so he's mainly a television actor, mm. but he also did a lot of voice work as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, to note, he's still alive, but he's just yes. currently not working currently all that much working. in TV and film. Um, From my understanding, he's more of a stage guy, like a yeah, song and dance yeah. man. Could you imagine Trackus? Twice Tony nominated. Can you imagine Trackus breaking out into a musical number <laughs> oh. in this episode? Now, that would have made him memorable to me. If Trackus just started doing a, a one, two, three, four, and he did a little tap dance during the meeting with Talia, um, oh, that would what, have been amazing. What, what, what if... Trachis was Adira's choreographer. Oh, <laughs> for the dance? Yes. Yes, I would have loved that. Okay. I would have loved the scene where he grabbed her and the little electrodes are going into her face and he's like, now dance for me. And she starts dancing. He's like, no. And he puts his hands on his hips and he's like, like no, this. like this. One, two, three, four. And he does a little Scatman Crothers dance. I would have loved that. A slave must never lie to her master. <laughs> Rackus, please. Can we talk about the big, big bad role he played, which was he was the voice of Emperor Palpatine. In the original release. In the original Empire Strikes Back, where Palpatine was played by like a woman or something with like something on her eyes. And he was the voice of Palpatine mm-hmm. originally. 
And I could see him being Palpatine. I could just see him being Palpatine. But of course, yeah. we got we got Ian instead, and he's great. But isn't that kind of strange? He voiced Palpatine, mm-hmm. and Palpatine became this big thing. And then twenty five years later, his performance is erased by yeah, George it w- Lucas and was Co. erased in the two thousand and four. Yeah, several years thing. Several years later, his performance is completely erased, and most people don't even know now right. that he did a voice for Palpatine. Which is again, that's something very but, cool. Like you have that on your credit. Like I was the voice of Palpatine to begin with. That is something pretty cool, and I know didn't what? know that Trachus was the voice of Palpatine to begin with. They, that's pretty neat. They haven't taken away all of his Star Wars credits. No. Oh, yes, he does a lot of voice work in other Star Wars things, like video games, a lot of... Yeah, uh, he was in <laughs> Star Wars X-Wing yeah. as Doodonna. Hey, 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 don't make fun of Doodonna and Star Wars. Star Wars have very great character names. Yeah. Solo, because he's alone. I, I prefer Sir Guy. We, uh, we have to talk about his role in Star Trek. We have to talk about his role in Star Trek in another episode that is like this, which is, it's goofy as hell, but I love it, which is Cupid, the episode where Q decides they have to play Robin Hood for the whole episode, and he plays Sir Guy of Gisborne. Uh, And I remember him in that episode because John Delancey as Q had to play off of him a lot throughout the episode. He had to play off of Sir Guy a lot, and he was a more serious stick in the mud. But I I remember him in that, and he was very good. But I got to talk. He was the last Columbo killer. In the original run of Columbo, he was the last one. He was the member of the IRA, and I thought this guy was Irish. And now finding out that uh, he was here as Trackish makes me even madder because he was charismatic and fun and cool and scary as hell in that episode of Columbo. So to find out that he's here being this this goofy, dumb, bland villain is very disappointing. And that's an issue that I think season one of uh, Babylon 5 has. I agree. Which is they bring in some of these really good character actors who are good at playing villains or whatever and they kind of misuse them later in the show we'll have david warner and david warner is doing absolutely nothing in babylon 5 and he's not doing the things that you want david warner to do but same with this guy this guy is great at playing villains great at playing comedy as well and they got him here just to be a guy who says give me the purple files very disappointing Uh, the first spotlight actor that uh we're both at least i am disappointed in i i'm majorly disappointed they have a guy who's clearly talented and they just didn't use him to the best of the abilities and trachus really is the black hole of this episode every time you go back to trachus i'm just i just roll my eyes and go oh this fucking guy and by the next episode i'll have forgotten about trachus because he is bland as hell (laughs) that is for adira and this is for me. What would you give this episode, Rachel? A yum being bad or a yum yum being good? That's our rating system. We don't give half yums. Yum yum. Yum yum. I give it a yum yum as well. Yum yum. It's well, it's a weird episode in terms of it's very essential, yet it has a very throwaway energy to it. Uh, I love it uh, unabashedly. Uh, yeah. I enjoy that it isn't burdened under the weight of the plot. 
this is also one of the first episodes too where it does feel not fully, but it's getting there of the show is moving away from being the introduction phase yeah, of itself. It gets to breathe a little bit. This more. is a pl- this is just an episode. It doesn't feel as oh we've got to explain how the station works and we've got to explain all of this. It, it's explaining stuff still. It's still suffering from that, but it feels less burdened yes. by. It doesn't feel like it's another pilot. Rachel. Yes. What are we watching next time on Babylon Five? On the next Babylon Five episode four, entitled "Infection." Mm. Smuggled aboard scientist David McCallum, remnants of living machines, unending peril too when a human infected by the contraband, Marshal Teague, morphs into a perfect warrior with a mission to wipe out all imperfect beings, making each resident a target. Whoa. You scared me there. You were doing your whispering and then you wanted to really emphasize targets. Well, it has an exclamation mark. He wants to protect. Uh, that is it, people. We have talked about uh, Babylon 5, Episode 3. Uh, so make sure you are up to date and caught up with the episodes. Make sure you give Infection a watch in the interim. You can follow us and talk to us on those social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, all of those places, and they are in the description of this episode. Look us up on there. Follow us on there if you are not already doing so. You can listen to exclusive episodes of our show that is on our Patreon, Yum Yum Podcast on Patreon. We're discussing Star Trek movies. We're discussing the best and worst episodes of Star Trek. We are giving our thoughts on other things, whether they be video games, movies, podcasts, television shows. We are talking about those, again, in the description. If you have not rated and reviewed us on whatever podcatcher you use. That's such a disappointment. That's such a shame. We really appreciate it. We would appreciate it greatly if you could do that. It would be beneficial to my joy and to Rachel's joy. You don't want to be added to our purple files. Yeah, yeah, we'll add you to the purple files. And I would like to give a big thanks and shout out to all of you people out there listening. We've been getting a massive amount of support and and, uh, adoration for what we've been doing thus far. It's still very... uh, very weird for us because we are still finding our groove with talking about Babylon 5, but it has been very nice to hear some of you people out there are enjoying what we're talking about and enjoying the show. It's been very nice to hear that, and we just wanted to give a thank you, guys, for supporting us and following us and listening and just having a wicked old time while you're here. Uh, that's it, Rachel. The only way to end the episode is the way where we have to end every episode, which is uh, good, good eating. Good eating to you. Good eating to you, Lieutenant Commander. <laughs> <laughs>